You're listening to episode 408 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hello, Max. How are you? Doing well, David. Surviving the heat, but it cools off in the evening. It's time to create podcast episodes. The world is good. Yes, it's definitely, and thank God for air conditioning. Mm, yes. So we got a lot of good stories tonight. One of them was really fun, but we've got a drone shuts down Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport, protecting sporting events with drones, using laser for drone communications. That was very interesting. The RQ-4 Global Hawk end-of-life program, an alligator attacks a drone. Yes, you heard that right, folks. A remote ID device from Aerobits. Archer Aviation plans to achieve full transition flights of their Maker aircraft. And the Zephyr UAS flies for 26 days for the U.S. Army. So with that, Max, should we get started? David, let's get started. Well, our first story comes from Politico.com. Errant drone briefly shuts down D.C. airport. Evidently, air traffic was shut down at Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport for 45 minutes because of an unmanned drone. And we don't know any of the details, at least not yet. We're not seeing who was operating the drone or if they took the drone down somehow or if the drone was actually recovered. So, yeah, it was a bit of a mystery. Uh, they basically told everyone that um, the airport was getting shut down for two hours. But we'll, we'll have to keep following it up because considering how sensitive an area that airport is, considering it's right next to um, the no-fly zone over Washington, D.C., it is kind of frightening that a drone would shut down National Airport. And part of the article talks about the Department of Homeland Security talking to Congress about drone incursions. They told Congress that the TSA has reported, now get this, nearly 2,000 drone sightings near U.S. airports since 2021. And uh, over that time period, pilots had to take evasive actions in 65 cases after the drones came too close to the aircraft or interfered with the aircraft in some way. <laughs> wow, David, nearly 2,000 sightings and 65 evasive actions. That's pretty significant. And, and that was only a year. So clearly the message about don't fly near airports is not getting out um, or people are just ignoring it. So federal law enforcement authority to counter malicious drones expires in October, and federal agencies have been asking lawmakers to extend it. I wonder what happens if it does expire, Max. Do we get a drone free-for-all? <laughs> Man, I hope not. I, I would like to think that uh, Congress will renew that uh, and that that authority to, uh, to counter malicious drones uh, will be extended. And of course, as we know, as we've talked about many times, that authority is very specific, and there are only a few agencies that even are allowed ever to, to deal with malicious drones in a way that takes the drone down. And it sounds like something that's not used all that frequently, but I'm sure Congress will extend that. I hope so. They'd be crazy not to. Yeah. 
Exactly. So let's talk about security for the World Cup. This was from BBCnews.com. World Cup to use drones to help protect stadiums. So Utah-based Fortin Technologies has a recent agreement with Qatar's Interior Ministry. They're going to provide interceptor drones at this winter's FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Now, Fortum UAVs that shoot nets uh, will be used to bring down small drones, small rogue drones, if, if any do appear. And these drone hunters, as they're called, are autonomous or radar-guided drones. So they pick up the target drone and fire a net, just like my little Lego drone set. Your Lego drone set fires net. Oh, that's right. That set does fire a net, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Cool. So I think the idea is to capture the drone, net it, and then carry it away. But they do note that if there are any or any interceptions of rogue drones, that they're not going to do this over the stadium or over the athletes or the spectators. It's going to be outside of um, that area, which is probably a wise decision. Though it brings a question, Max. If the target drone is over a stadium during an event, how are they going? I, I guess there will be multiple ways to counteract that drone because you can't take, if, if you're not going to be able to take it out over the stadium, you, ha- you have to wait till it transits beyond the stadium. It's kind of tricky there. Well, I guess you certainly don't want the, the errant drone to uh, fall onto the field, onto the playing field, or especially into the, uh, into the stands where the, where the spectators are. And so maybe, you know, maybe a, a net approach is perhaps the safest way to do that rather than disrupting the, uh, the communication signals or certainly shooting it down with some kind of ballistic device. So let's talk about lasers. And we're not talking about shooting drones down, but actually controlling drones using lasers. This was from Gizmodo. Laser-controlled drones can evade signal-jamming countermeasures. So this is a new way to counter counter UAS. Yeah, this is the cat-and-mouse game to the next level, I suppose. But uh, as we were uh, kind of mentioning with the previous story, counter-drone technology that physically attacks rogue drones with a net or a projectile or something, it requires that you track the drone's movement, right? You're going to hit the drone with a, with a net or a projectile. You've got to know where to fire it. So uh, that's kind of a, a limitation of uh, physically attacking rogue drones. Uh, signal jamming doesn't require that kind of precise tracking, but now what we see is a British company, Kinetic, that has a way to remotely operate drones without the types of communication signals that can be jammed. So Kinetic's new system uses lasers. FSOs, or Free Space Optical Communications, or SOCs, signals are invisible. To interfere or intercept them requires physical blockade or detector between the transmitter and the aircraft. So you have to put a wall in the way. Kinetic has recently tested a drone that uses lasers for communication between a drone and a ground station. This is 
pretty mind-blowing technology that if you're using a laser to control a UAS. It does uh, kind of seem like maybe something that has maybe military applications, perhaps. Uh, I mean, military drones uh, that might otherwise be susceptible to jamming, you'd like to be able to operate them in a way where that kind of jamming is not possible. And apparently with this with this laser-based approach to communications, there isn't a, a way to jam it in a conventional way. But there are some limitations of using lasers for this purpose. Yeah, um, it will make the FAA happy because you can only fly it in line of sight. It won't work on autonomous drones using GPS navigation. So line of sight, the laser has to be able to see the, the vehicle to receive the information. Yeah, that does seem like a pretty significant Limiting. limitation, right? Un unless perhaps the you know the control point is not on the ground, but maybe is on another aircraft up at a higher altitude, perhaps, or something like that, where you could shoot the laser down at the drone. But for for a ground-based control of the drone, it seems like it's fairly limiting. It's an interesting technology. Um, I'm sure Kinetic will keep working at it. And maybe they'll be able to start controlling them from satellites or something. Mm. All of which, you know, that kind of technology. That, but I think you're right, Max. It benefits from a look-down technology standpoint. So maybe as a loyal wingman, if you've got an aircraft at a higher altitude that you can aim it at, we shall see. But let's talk about the big boy in the drone world. The RQ-4 Global Hawk. What's as big as a DC-9 and as autonomous? It's the Global Hawk. But evidently, the Air Force has decided they want rid of them. I think the Air Force has been trying to, to phase them out for some time. But now we see the, the Air Force plans to phase out all the remaining RQ-4 Global Hawks uh, by fiscal 2027. Now, uh, the manufacturer, Northrop Grumman, was informed that they should expect that the fleet will reach its end of life by that date. Now, David, I guess Block 40 is the most recent uh, version of the RQ-4. Yeah, and the Air Force has nine of them. Um, so it, this isn't a very large force, but this is a very unique aircraft. But after one was shot down over the Persian Gulf by Iran the Air Force had sort of determined that this very large, slower drone, um, which, is a, which is a hail, high-altitude, long-endurance drone, probably was no longer fit for the current combat environments. So the Air Force, in a statement, said, quote, our ability to win future high-end conflicts requires accelerating investment in connected, survivable platforms and accepting short-term risks by divesting legacy ISR assets that offer limited capability against peer and near-peer threats. So they're basically saying the RQ-4 has reached its life expectancy. Now, one of the questions that I had, David, when I was looking through this was, what happens to the old <laughs> retired RQ-4s? Do they park them in the desert or do they use them for something? And the article actually answers my question in part when they say that the, the, the four remaining Global, uh, Global Hawk Block 20 
aircraft were divested in October. And here's what they're being used for. Now they're being used to test hypersonic missiles. This is part of the Pentagon's Sky Range program. So, so they live on in another role. Well, yeah, for a short period of time. Yeah. Until the, until the missile comes up and meets, meets it and causes it to go boom. But it's a sizable aircraft that you're, you're shooting at. So, I mean, this is not like an MQ-1 or an MQ-9. This is, a, this is an airliner-sized aircraft. Um, the 20 Block 30 aircraft have already been re- retired in order to be removed from service from the Air Force by 2023. I have a feeling that they will probably go the same way as the Block 20s. They'll be used as targets. All right. This is a really fun, well, yes, it's a, it is a fun story, David, because when you see something like this, you just have to chuckle. You're right. Nature has a, will find a way. In this case, it was an alligator. What a snap. Moment alligator leaps out of Brazilian river and devours nosy fisherman's drone in mid-flight. And this was from the dailymail.co.uk. So a Brazilian man was testing out his new drone. And, you know, like all people do when they see some alligators, they go look at it with their drone. And then he hovered over one of the alligators. And you can see this in in the video. And the alligator sort of watches the drone for a few seconds and then suddenly leaps out of the water and grabs the drone and swims away. And you see in the video, the uh, well, kind of a close-up, sort of inside view of an alligator's <laughs> mouth. <laughs> yeah, the camera doesn't stop rolling. You know, and Max, I think over the years we've had lots of animals deciding that, you know, they were they were fed up with whatever was buzzing in front of them. We've had elephants and we've had lions and now we've got alligators you know what was really impressive was the ability of the alligator to jump from pretty much a standstill out of the water to get this drone yeah you know pretty impressive there was a quote from the article it said Sousa and his fishing buddies were able to chase down the alligator but were unable to get the Bengal drone back because it was still in his mouth so, again, lessons learned. You, you have to be kind to animals and people, you know, and, and don't fly your drones near alligators. It, 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 will, it will bite you in the drone. I wonder how they got the SD card back so we could see this video. Maybe, they, maybe eventually the, the, the alligator coughed it up. Maybe. But you know what, Max? If they had remote ID, they would have been able to find it. Yeah. This is from UASweekly.com. The most advanced remote ID with Wi-Fi and BLE technology. Aerobits has launched an advanced version of its IDME Pro device. This is uh, some electronics that can broadcast in Wi-Fi and in Bluetooth. And it provides really an enhanced identification and tracking for UAS it works with Mavlink devices. Uh, interestingly, it's got automatic power adjustment according to the country of use. So as we've talked about remote ID in the past, uh, here 
in the United States, we have uh, an approach that says, well, okay, uh, the drone needs to have a, a device that, that broadcasts either uh, Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. And this one has both. And it is a bit pricey. It's 199 euros. So, um, though, which these days is a real easy conversion for us Americans. It's $199 US. Yeah, pretty close. Um, the Wi-Fi connects to the PixHawk drone controller via a JST connector. And it uses also Bluetooth Low Energy, or BLE, to provide surveillance and drone operator identification capability via smartphones or tablets. wonder what the range of the Bluetooth is. Yeah, Bluetooth, uh, yeah. especially low-energy Bluetooth. I don't know the answer to that, but traditionally Bluetooth has a very limited range. I mean, it was, it was never intended to operate over the kind of range that we expect with Wi-Fi. You know, it's more like 10 or 15 feet kind of a kind of a thing. So, yeah, and I guess we need to learn more about how Bluetooth is usable in, in this kind of scenario. And if you have an answer, you can send us an email to feedback at the uavdigest.com because we'd like to know. Yeah, yeah. So Aerobits is kind of an interesting company. They provide subsystems for the integration of UAS into the airspace. They specialize in air traffic control systems both manned and unmanned. So this is uh, just one of their product offerings. They they have a number of other devices as well. But I think in this case, uh, this this product, this IDME Pro, uh, is uh, something that can be added to, I think, to an existing drone to provide uh, remote ID capability. So it, it's coming, and it, we all have to think about it. Um, remote ID is important especially if we're going to make be in the NAS. So definitely an interesting, interesting thing. And again, anyone with familiarity uh, with BLE and Bluetooth for operations and this kind of data transfer, um, give us an email um, and let us know what, what we're missing. Well, our next story come, is actually a press release from Archer. And Archer Flight Testing gains momentum on pace to achieve transition flight by year end. So their um, new urban air mobility vehicle, the Maker, is getting ready to transfer from vertical flight to horizontal flight. They've been testing the, the aircraft. In fact, they completed a successful first hover flight test in December last year, 2021. But uh, they've made enough progress since then that they're they're making this announcement now that they're pretty confident that they can achieve that goal that that you mentioned David of flying full transition flights by year end 2022 with this maker aircraft uh, which is interesting it you know we we've talked about uh, tilt tilt rotor tilt wing uh, this is a tilt propeller system which is um, a little bit different than than those just the the tip of the propeller rotates or tilts to make the transition from vertical to horizontal flight. And it's got 12 motors and capable of traveling 150 miles an hour. So one year from first hover to transition um, to horizontal flight and back is kind of um, impressive, you know, and it's a major step forward. 
the engineering team is focused on the development and testing of the systems needed for full transition, different hover scenarios to analyze the TPS in the air. So basically, you, I, I guess they're sort of gradually moving forward and bringing the um, rotors into a position where they are doing the full transition. So you do that. And they're planning weekly flights. So it's definitely a slow progression, but a steady one at least. And that's that's good progress. Yeah, it is. And it seems like they are making that kind of consistent incremental progress step by step. So very good. They're going to be looking at different climb rates and descent rates, different air speeds. Of course, they have to exercise the tilt propeller system, the TPS in uh, or under all those different kinds of scenarios, those different kinds of conditions. And apparently that's what they're doing through the course of this year. So, yeah, and you, you definitely need to um, check the show notes and look at the picture. It, it's kind of a cool vehicle, and you can see how the propellers just tilt, whereas we have like a tilt rotor, if, if you know what a V-22 is, the whole engine itself tilts. Where in this case, it's just a little tip of the, and it looks like the drive shaft changes to the propeller. So, um, which is old school technology back to Curt the Curtis X19 was a tilt propeller system. Um, so, what's old is new again. So, let's talk about the Army conducting high altitude experiments with the Zephyr UAS. This was from gpsworld.com. Well, the, the Army wants to implement ultra-long-endurance stratospheric UAS capabilities. And so they've been using the, the Zephyr, which is Airbus-developed, the Zephyr. And in a test last month, in June 2022, the, uh, the Zephyr UAS flew for 26 days, which is a new record. Uh, which the old record was held by the same uh, same airplane uh, set in 2018. Uh, but the Zephyr has achieved a number of interesting firsts in this test program. Yeah, in this flight, it was the first flight into international airspace. So it flew from um, the southwest of the United States into international airspace. It was the first flight over water. Um, it was the longest continuous flight using satellite communication controls. And lastly, the farthest demonstration from its launch point while carrying commercial off-the-shelf payload. 26 days is a long time for an aircraft to be up in the air. I got to, that, that is an impressive record. Now, the Army Futures Command is, conduct, is conducting these uh, experiments, these stratospheric ex experiments they're doing that at Yuma Proving Ground in Arizona. And uh, the, the team working that is the, oh boy, it's the Assured Positioning Navigation Timing Slash Space Cross-Functional Team, <laughs> which is out of Huntsville, Alabama. That's a long name for a, for a team title. APNT Space CFT. Yeah, no. But this flight last month, um, it demonstrated some of the Zephyr's capabilities. Uh, they were looking at the energy storage capacity, uh, the battery longevity, also some obvious things like solar panel efficiency and its abilities to uh, keep at station. And of course, if you don't know what the Zephyr is, the Zephyr is a very long-winged 
aircraft and the wing top of the wing is completely covered with solar cells which is how it charges its batteries for times when um there is no sunlight so it charges its batteries during the day and then runs on the batteries um at night to keep it on station and at altitude now they are planning a second flight this time uh, over the pacific ocean and they're going to take a look at uh, a prototype payload, something developed by the Army Futures Command, uh, over uh, multiple combatant commands. So uh, another important test flight coming up. Yeah, well, wonder how long, how many days it's going to stay up for that one. Mm. Um, and what what's significant about the um, flying over the ocean is the thermals are much different from over the high desert like Yuma than it is over the Pacific when you go over an ocean. So the atmosphere is a completely different um, environment for the aircraft to operate. So that's why it seems it seems unusual that they just flew over the water the first the first time, but they had to get comfortable with being able to fly in that different different atmosphere, even though it's the same atmosphere, but it is definitely different. So we got a video of the week, Max. Yes, you found something interesting. Yeah, um, it was from today.com. Inside look at Amazon's top secret drone testing facility. So Aaron McLaughlin reports for, for today when you could see them in your own backyard. This talks about what Amazon's planning and how they're testing um, the package delivery. It's coming. So it's a bit different than it was some years ago uh, when we first saw some uh, Amazon multi-rotors that were being contemplated for drone delivery. But uh, apparently the process now is that there's a GPS marker that you put in in your yard, uh, basically a sheet of paper or cardboard or something that represents the target for the drone. And then the drone comes by to deliver the package to you uh, using that target as, as, you know, a locator. And it drops the package from a height of about four feet. Now, it's not lowered. The package is actually ejected and bombed. Bombed, yeah, free falls (laughs) the last four feet. And, of course, this is for... Packages up to uh, up to five pounds. Now, uh, in the video, uh, they explain some things. Uh, one question that comes up is, uh, well, how do you know that the customer's got a suitable drop zone? Uh, you know, that there's uh, no obstruction from trees or whatever might impede uh, this kind of uh, delivery. And so the, uh, the guy from uh, Amazon, from Prime Air, says that they will actually physically, at least at this point, physically survey customer yards to verify that they're suitable for delivering the packages this way. And what's more important is they're not autonomous. Or if they are autonomous, they're going to be monitored by humans, which minimizes the risk there. So it's three to five years for widespread service. Um, and Max, you commented that these things look large, like six foot when being wheeled on the ground. So th- this is a sizable vehicle that's going to be running around. Um, I'm wondering if it's only going to carry one pound package at a time or there it's going to make multiple deliveries. You know, that, that's a good point because it, it <laughs> to me, it looks more than capable of carrying five pounds. 
well, I was thinking the five pound weight um, was because we're dropping it four feet. You don't want anything weighing more than that because it probably would break. But it is large. When you see the video of of these delivery drones flying, well, you really can't. You have no frame of reference, right? When they're in the air, you you really can't say. But you develop in your in your mind an idea of you know about how big they must be. You know, based on other drones we've seen used for for package delivery. But in the video, you see uh, you see you see them on the ground. In in one particular case, uh, there is a, a worker who's got the drone mounted on some kind of a, you know, wheeled frame for moving it around. And this drone is taller than the person pushing it around. So these are quite large, much larger than I was sort of anticipating in my head. Yeah, I think I think we've all had a concept that little quadcopters were going to be buzzing around carrying our packages. It doesn't look like currently the technology is set up for that yet. These are sizable drones and you know, I, I live in a very tree-lined housing development, and I can't imagine this thing getting in to drop a package off on my front lawn. Now, as you mentioned, this was uh, produced by uh, or for the Today Show. It's an NBC show. Um, and so in the video, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes, uh, in the video, the, uh, the, the Today Show hosts comment on the video after you know after the interview is is over and one of them raises a really good question that nobody had an answer for which was what happens if it's raining so it does seem that this is a fair weather kind of delivery service and the u.s postal service guy postman will say you know come rain or sleet or snow or ice you know nothing will prevent us from our daily rounds well evidently if the weather's bad, the, you're, you're not going to get your package. It's going to be delayed. Maybe. But you can find that video uh, on our website, which, of course, is the UAVdigest.com. And we want to thank you for listening to this episode. It's been episode 408. Uh, you can uh, uh, find us on our website, or if you want to go straight to the show notes for this episode, they're at the UAVdigest.com slash 408. And we'd love to hear from you. So again, send us some email at feedback at the UAVdigest.com. Or if you'd like, you can talk about talk to us in our Slack listener team. And you do that again by sending us an email. Um, and we'll send you an invite to the Slack listener team. Of course, Max and I are on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Likewise, we have a Twitter feed and a Facebook feed. So with that, I'm going to say this is David in Delaware. And Max on the beautiful eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay. Wow, that was very lovely. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.